I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. We cover current and future law enforcement topics, and the topic that uh, we're talking about today with our guest, Echo Hudson, is uh, domestic violence. It's certainly a current topic, future topic, and and a past topic that affects uh, all over the world, all over the country, and certainly us here locally. Uh, One thing that I'd like to sort of discuss in reference to domestic violence is even though it's something that's ever changing and the reason why it seems to be more recently is it's not a topic that's been around for a long time even though yes uh, domestic violence has been around for for a long time when i first got into law enforcement in 91 uh, one thing that really stuck to me then is that actually in the law books it was not against the law for domestic violence against your wife it wasn't against the law for sexual assault against your wife or against your spouse for that matter And so just thinking about the fact that less than 30 years ago that this wasn't even against the law, and so it certainly has been ever-changing along the way, and uh, I know that uh, many people have focused on this, and throughout my career we've seen changes in in training and education and and trying to figure out how to keep victims safe, uh, how to get them out of these uh, situations, and it's something that uh, legislature has been passed on and, and those type of things, many things we're going to talk about. But uh, just to give you even an idea of just the, the current uh, situation that even you know, we face here in, in Montgomery County, and for those listeners that are outside of our area, uh, we're broadcasting from Conroe, Texas, and uh, Montgomery County at uh, IR Lone Star Radio. Uh, but we do go out on a podcast that's it's worldwide. But speaking locally, you know, in in 2015, we had nine homicides, 2016, 17, and then in 2017, it jumped up to 32, and then 25 and 23, and, and doesn't seem to be going back down to the original numbers. But when you actually look at those numbers and focus on what's causing those, uh, it relates very closely to domestic violence. Most mm-hmm. people are, are afraid of uh, being robbed and shot during a robbery and, and those type of things, and uh, a stranger... Uh, actually hurting you, killing you, is way more rare than what we've seen of, of domestic violence and, and being with, for lack of a better term, the wrong person. The uh, problem that comes out of that is this happens in private homes and trying to find these people to get them help. And, and Echo, I know you are, are directly involved with that, and certainly in looking at these numbers, I know that uh, the district attorney, Brett Ligon, is focused on this and, mm-hmm. and correcting that, and I know he's put you in charge of that division. So if you could sort of tell us your position, what you do at the district attorney's office. Sure. So I started um, in Montgomery County as a prosecutor in 2009, right when Brett Ligon was uh, elected. That was my first year there, and I was hired under Brett Ligon. And immediately, um, both Brett and our then first assistant, Phil Grant, uh, put forward a platform of um, interest in domestic violence and combating domestic violence and in understanding what type of situation we were dealing with because it's a different type of offense. It's a different type of criminal offense than a lot of others that we may work. And so in 2011, I believe it was, I um, helped 
Phil Grant, and we sat down together and wrote, a, wrote an application for federal funds to create a prosecutor position that was dedicated uh, to combating domestic violence in Montgomery County. Prior to that, Montgomery County DA's office did not have a specialized division, so that was kind of the, the beginning start of that. Um, it has since developed into a, a full-on division, and I left the division for a while and then came back. You know, our career paths go around for a while. But um, so right now, our division has expanded to multiple prosecutors, and we do have a dedicated investigator. We have a victim assistance coordinator. And we also have a liaison with our local um, Women's Center or our victim advocacy services that are in the private sector, um, the Montgomery County Women's Center. And that liaison is um, housed part-time in our office so that we can use her services directly while we're there. So we have a team of individuals, and we're employing what we call a multidisciplinary team approach. So we bring people who all have different roles. It's not just prosecution um, to try to understand and better combat this type of offense. You know, and, and the fact of, you know, a lot of people have an idea of domestic violence. Um, it It's not... Uh, it doesn't uh, target one socioeconomic group. Uh, it's not a particular individual. It, it's sort of uh, like looking at uh, that serial killer, that rapist. You're not going to identify them by looking at them. It, it affects everybody. And, and preparing uh, for the show and looking at uh, some of my old cases and, and homicides that I'd worked, uh, seeing how many of those were related to family violence. And uh, they ranged from... Um, Again, all socioeconomic groups, and and just a couple that stuck in in my head. We had uh, one where a, a person murders his sister after sexually assaulting his wife. Uh, we have a multimillionaire uh, that kills his wife after a family vacation. You know, we have uh, murder suicides, at least uh, three. I won't say back to back, but very close uh, in a highly influential area of of the woodlands that we patrol. So it, again. Uh, it is a, uh, a problem uh, among just the fact that some people uh, are violent. And, and uh, in those cases, the, the scary part about it is in the ones that I just talked about, uh, there are certain ones that had previous instances of family violence. There's things that possibly could have uh, alerted us to get that person help. And then there's others that nothing had happened previously. There was no indication uh, on why this occurred, and that's always the hardest ones to deal with because uh, there was, at least in our eyes, never any indication that we could have provided some type of help. You know, in, uh, you know, dating back, like I said, uh, back when I started in 91, but in 94 uh, is actually when uh, the federal government passed the Violence Against Women Act, and every president uh, since that was enacted has uh, reenact this and built upon that to provide services and and again trying to address as we learn things about uh, the psychological nature uh, of family violence and I know that you get asked this all the time uh, so I'm sure that uh, uh, you know you you've come up with some ideas to the victims that you've seen through the years but the general citizen asks well, why don't they just leave why don't Go they ahead. get out right it's the number one question right for people who aren't involved in that or haven't experienced that. Um, going back to a couple of things that you that you mentioned, um, I think that the the statistic is about one in three women and one in four men in our society um, will have experienced domestic violence sometime in their lifetime. So it is pretty prevalent. Um, but it can be someone close to you, it can be a coworker, it can be a family member, or it can be yourself, and it, it really doesn't pick a socioeconomic level or a certain type of um, race. We do know that most of our 
um, victims tend to be, when law enforcement gets involved anyway, our victims tend to be women. I think um, my personal experience is it's about 80% female victims in my cases, and perpetrators can be uh, male or female, um, but it, it tends to be male on female are the cases that we tend to get, about 80% of those. So um, going to the cases that, um, that we work, we find that you know, it, anybody can be in a range of, of the cycle of violence. And the cycle of violence is something that people can live in their, in their own personal life and they don't even know kind of what's going on, the dynamics inside the relationship and understanding what's going on. And so we end up um, trying to understand more than just whether an offense occurred, more than just whether an assault occurred, more than just whether this person is being abused in their home, but is it escalating? Is it something that we can look at and understand um, if there's a way to tell that this relationship is going to escalate to a very high level of violence or even a homicide? So as far as, uh, you know, uh, people not getting out of situations, you know, the you know, we talk about child crimes, we talk about grooming and stuff, and there's certainly uh, a, a role in that, a, a pattern that we seem to have seen over the years of, it's about control, right? right. And so the uh, perpetrators that we normally find, uh, they um, will have them quit their job or remove them from friends, remove them from family. They, they start uh, initially um, you know, it may come across as lies of, well, I just want to spend time with you. I, I just, you know, um, I want us to spend time together mm -hmm. and they're interfering and, and those type of things. Well, it's, mm -hmm. it slowly molds into uh, one, that you have no one. And then the second is that you're dependent on uh, the person who is now mm -hmm. creating the violence. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, that seems to be uh, one of the problems that we run into that even when we go to a scene, uh, and it may be because they called, it may be because a neighbor called or whatever, uh, that uh, we'll find a victim that doesn't want to press charges. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and that's one of the changes to the law years ago that we didn't need the victim, that the state of Texas would take over because of how serious it was. Right. But then y'all have to deal with the victim coming in, I don't want to press charges. So how do y'all handle that with a, a person who is not cooperative because they, they don't want to see this person go to jail because they're all, all the things we've heard, right? They're not always like this. It's only like when they drink. It's all the many things, right? Right. So, yeah, and there's any number of reasons, and it, it may be that they're asking us to drop the charges or dismiss the case because of things that they're not telling us, right? Um, they might be scared and not willing to say that, and so they give us a different reason. But the reasons that we that we hear are exactly what you said. You know, I can't I can't afford to pay, pay for bills. I can't afford to uh, feed my kids. If he's not there, he's the sole provider, um, and that, that tends to show us that there's been isolation, that that um, there's been economic dependence is probably one of the biggest ones I hear. Um, and so, you know, you kind of have to go to what is our role as a prosecutor? And our, we have a couple of different roles. Um, you know, we take an oath to see that justice is done. And so justice in every case can look different. And in domestic violence, it might look different. When we started our division, we were dismissing more than half of our cases um, and there was a place on the dismissal form that literally said at the request of the complaining witness. And we took a look at that and we said, well, when victims come in and they tell us, I want to drop the charges, I don't want this case to go anywhere, what's really going on? And 
are they going to come back? Is this a symptom of a bigger cycle for this person? And if we don't do anything in this case, if we don't address what's gotten us to the criminal case point, then are they just going to come back and has this been a waste of time? And so we started looking at that. The law does not say that the victim must request the charges. The law does not say that the victim must prosecute their own charges. That's the state of Texas. That's a prosecutor. And so it is the prosecutor's decision whether to dismiss the case in the end. Um, And so when you take that element out of it and you look at just the evidence in the case, then you can make a decision based on, do we have enough evidence to prove that an offense has occurred? And if we do, is proving that and getting a conviction on this offender the right thing to do for this family, the right thing to do for this victim, and the right thing to do for this offender? What is it going to create in that situation? And it's very hard because when you don't get a lot of information from a victim about what's going on inside the home, and he may be there every day with her while the case is pending. This is one of those cases where the offender has oftentimes 100% access and we have none to determine what's going on. And so uh, we want to be very careful at, at not dismissing a charge just because the victim tells us something, but looking at it, really analyzing it, and hopefully understanding more. If it is a dangerous situation, I also have a duty under the laws of the state of Texas, the Code of Criminal Procedure, um, charges law enforcement and courts and prosecutors with a duty to protect a victim in a criminal violence, in a family violence case. And so that duty to protect a victim can often go beyond their spoken wishes of, please don't throw him in jail, please don't, you know, convict him of this case. And so that duty is kind of conflicting with what the victim wants. And in the end, it really is the prosecutor that kind of has to decide. And so we've, we've implemented what we call evidence-based prosecution which is not victim-led prosecution. And there are states that still um, employ victim-led, and I think there's probably counties in Texas that still employ victim-led prosecution. She comes in, she says, I don't want to press charges. It goes away. Well, it's an easy way out. I mean, it's, it I mean, you have plenty of cases stacking up, right? You have plenty of victims that want help. They want to receive this. They need your help. And you have this other one over here that I don't, I don't want right. you to do this. I mean, it's, it's very easy to put that victim aside and work on the other cases you have. Right. And it, and it, it can't takes, be that bad if she's, if right. she's staying with them, right? She doesn't leave. Those but are it, it takes a big step, you know, especially for, for your office, for the district attorney to step forward and say, no, they matter too. Right. They're, they're still victims and there may be something else going on and having that time. Right. And it is time beyond what, again, you, you have a stack on your desk of people that are asking for help mm-hmm. and needing help and to, to dig through to the ones that may need it but don't want it uh, is a big thing. Right. So, the, um, so talking about you, you had mentioned as far as them living with them while this is going on and stuff. And, uh, you know, um, Again, I just, as we're talking about this, I see all the changes that have just come in place over the years and what those are the protective orders mm-hmm. and trying to help them at least stay away. You know, uh, right up front, we'll admit it's a question that, or a statement comes by all the time, a piece of paper does not protect them, right? I mean, Correct. If, if someone wants to get there and hurt them, uh, we were talking about a case uh, before we started of a person that as soon as they got out, they went back, uh, they, right. they stabbed her and, and hurt her. And the, I mean, a piece of paper doesn't do that. It it, in my opinion, it just provides a, a way to create that, to get away, right? To, to acknowledge that you need to find a place. But how does that work? Basically, um, as far as, you know, if we were talking to a victim right now that, uh, and we tell them, hey, you can get a protective order, what does that mean to them? 
So they're in Texas, at least, um, and I, I know that in other states, the the way that the laws are set up about protective orders are going to be very different. So um, I can only speak to what I know locally. But um, in Texas, there is only one type of protective order that goes in in a criminal case. The others are all a civil matter. And so uh, the victim or somebody on behalf of the victim that's not the state of Texas will have to go in file an application in a civil court, request a protective order. They have to bring the offender in. They have to serve them with it. They have to have notice. They have to have an opportunity to respond. All of the due process that happens in the civil case. Um, and many times victims are very overwhelmed by that. And it's very scary to put in an application all of the claims of abuse and ongoing things that they would have to show in order to establish that there's ongoing violence and likely to be ongoing violence in the future. That's one of the things that the courts need to find. And so um, victims will often balk at that and they'll they'll get scared and they'll just drop the charges. And in a civil case, when it's victim-led because she filed it, right. then it's dropped. So our legislature in Texas, Texas has given us another option, which is when an arrest is made in a family violence case and when there has been a charge brought, then the state, the law enforcement, or the magistrate at the hearing can request, or the victim, can request an emergency protective order that is put in place. It is put in place at the first magistrate hearing um, where the defendant goes and probable cause is read and there's a, there's a probable cause hearing that's done on those charges. And at that point, the magistrate can find, based on the offense report and the allegations by the state, um, they can use the criminal history, they can use information that law enforcement has gathered on the relationship between the parties, and that, that magistrate can put that um, emergency protective order into place. So it can last between 31 and 91 days, depending on the nature of the charges. And this can keep them, or at least... Uh orders them to stay away from the house, stay away from schools, uh, children, those right. type of things. Um, One of the nice things about a protective order is that um, the police can go out and make an instant arrest for a violation just for the person coming out and making contact when they're not supposed to or being harassing um, to the victim if they're not supposed to or going to a protected place such as the residence if they're not allowed to go there, the place of business of the victim, child care facility. Um, so officers and law enforcement can use that to make an arrest immediately, whereas if that wasn't in place, then she would call and say, he's showing at my place of business, and there may not be a criminal charge for that behavior. So out of the family violence that, that y'all normally work, you know, if there is a normal one, I know that now we have laws, uh, again, to protect against continuous family violence, right? Yes. This continuing going on. What are some things that uh, you see that, I guess, leading up to? I mean, obviously, if we have an assault, we have family violence, we get another one, that's, that's easy, right? But in your cases that you've had where it's sort of the first family violence, like the first time it's going to court, what are some histories that you've seen along the way that would sort of be red flags like, you know, you need to get out, you need to be telling us, you need to, you know, think about this uh, type of thing. So I think what you may be asking about is some, like, red flag lethality factors Well, as far as we just see? basically to a victim that, you know, well, he does this, he does that. I mean, mm -hmm. what are some common things you've seen along the way that, that end up in violence? Right. Right. So, um, and, and that's one of the things that's actually kind of developed over the past um, couple of decades that's pretty new, is what are the factors in a relationship that may not be a criminal offense, but is, is scary behavior, right? What is... Um, likely to get us to a criminal case. Right. And so um, 
there's been quite a few studies recently, and it's been national. Um, I think the biggest study that I am aware of, you know, kind of conversed in, in Maryland and created statewide laws that have now been implemented in at least 30 to 35 states. And I tried to find a statistic this morning to see if I could get more updated information because it's been a couple years, but I think it's a nationwide trend, um, is what are those lethality factors that when you sit down with a victim and you're talking to them about the history, and this goes to law enforcement at the scene right. as well, not just me when I'm you know, sitting with a victim in my office, but what are some factors in that relationship that say, wait a second, this is really scary behavior that is likely to escalate, likely to to get more serious as far as violence, um, stalking behaviors, right? So um, following somebody, showing up, um, you know, if, if she goes to the grocery store demanding to know where she was and wanting the receipt, um, controlling behavior as far as um, where she goes, isolation, um, controlling who the person talks to, um, wanting to see the phone all the time, jealousy, um, especially when it's unfounded. And I think law enforcement hears a lot at the scene, um, and I see this in my reports all the time, is, oh, I found that she was texting somebody on Facebook, or right. I found social media was involved, right? And communications with any other person, and I told her I don't like that, or, you know, whatever the whatever the start of the argument, there's a lot of jealousy, there's a lot of controlling behaviors that you hear when somebody describes the situation. And that's one of the big ones. I think one in three women... Um, who are murdered in, by an intimate partner, there are factors that were documented showing that there were stalking behaviors prior to that homicide. So that's one of the biggest ones. Um, we also know that threatening suicide, if an offender or batterer threatens suicide or threatens the victim, obviously a threat to kill the victim or the children, um, that's, a, that's a lethality factor. When a gun is introduced into a domestic violence relationship and there's a, a gun that's threatened or used as a weapon or is um, just part of the episode, doesn't even have to be shot, um, then that creates a 500% chance um, that there is likely to be a homicide in the future um, by that offender. And then another red flag that I think is, is a huge nationwide trend is uh, strangulation. And that's probably one of the most scary ones because it indicates that the violence has gone beyond a push, gone beyond a shove, gone beyond that initial level of violence where it may not end up with marks, it may be just a low-level assault, but then strangulation happens and you've got somebody who is, is using deadly force on somebody to control that person. And um, we find statistically that that creates between a seven to 800% chance that there will be a homicide in, in the future when we see that in a relationship. And so those are some of the red flags that, you know, you sit down with a victim and you start to ask, well, what's been going on between you two? What happens when the argument happens? What, you know, what is the, what is the trigger that creates the argument and how does it end and who, who ends the fight and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you start to hear about some of those uh, behaviors and you start to think, oh my gosh, there's some pretty high statistics that are telling us that this person has a lot of red flags. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you brought up in, in two cases sort of uh, come to mind and, and speaking of that and two uh, of the issues that you spoke of, you know, one, and it, it was a, say a hard question for me to answer. It was a, um, again, it was the case in which um, the person had sexually assaulted his wife. The wife was uh, younger, 
uh, wife and had murdered his sister. Mm -hmm. And so the, the wife survives and um, the husband is, is going to jail, been in jail. And so she had to come pick up some property and this was her first relationship. And so uh, she's picking up her property from me and she asked me the question, says, how do I trust anyone? How do I know, you know, that someone is, you know, this, this never happened before. There was never previous violence, you know, and, you know, this came out, you know, of nowhere, you know, mm -hmm. this is my first relationship. How do I trust anybody from here on out? And again, uh, a very uh, young girl. And, and my only uh, comment to her that I could even think of is very similar to what you just said. And that is uh, this person had threatened suicide, had attempted suicide before. And all I can really say is if they don't care enough about themselves, if they don't think that much about their own life, mm -hmm. uh, they probably don't regard any other human's life uh, very much either you know uh, the other one that uh, stuck with me was as you said as far as strangulation and mm -hmm. why it stuck with me is it's um, those are much harder as far as the injuries yes. you know uh, in this case uh, the female died okay um, and there were things said on the scene that were to try to uh, sway the detectives in another way to not look at it as homicide to look at it as something else and those type of things and it wasn't until autopsy that you saw those type of injuries that this was a homicide. This was right. a violent act that occurred uh, versus uh, what it was alleged to be, right? right. And that's, that's the hard thing on a live victim, somebody who lives through it, especially a strangulation. Um, I think that's what you're talking about is all of the injuries at the sure. autopsy, they're internal injuries. You can't cut open a live person and look at what's going right. on inside. And so I, I, I definitely agree with you. Strangulation is a completely different sort of investigation for law enforcement. You know, and I know that um, in their heads, as we've talked, we've, uh, there's been SAFIC, which is Sexual Assault Violence Investigator mm -hmm. Course, and then mm -hmm. there's uh, strangulation courses of coming. Again, all this has developed over the years, right, yes. of trying to create and, and um, there's now um, strangulation course just focused on on the fact of uh, the dangers of this and those type of things yes um, and I know y'all have started implementing things here I know it started a few years back with just sort of filling out some forms and different things uh, mm -hmm. for for officers so y'all could present a better case or to f uh, basically be able to articulate these things that we've been talking about right you know, what are some of those factors? What are some of those things that really stand out to you that, that this is beyond the, the, the pushing, right? This is beyond mm -hmm. just, uh, this is about to go uh, downhill quick. Right. So um, what we've kind of been working on is, is taking some of the national trends and things that have been uh, tried in other, other states and working on them here in Montgomery County. And so that's kind of, I've been to some uh, national conferences and, and a lot of local conferences. We work with our sister counties here in Texas um, to kind of try to understand some of the investigative techniques. And, you know, we understand law enforcement when they're on the scene and it's, it's not a, a homicide or it's not a, a case that um, seems to stand out to them. Um, we get it, and, and often they don't have time on patrol to do the things that they need to do. So we've kind of had a, a, a focus on what can we get someone to do that really increases the value of the information that right. they're gathering, but still keep it as a short um, type of investigation that doesn't take, you know, weeks on end because we need to get somebody into jail that night and get the victim to safety, right? right. So right. Um, so we've worked on some forms. We started, I think in 2013, we started our first strangulation uh, supplement form to an offense report. And we have kind of 
evolved that over the years as we learn about strangulation. Our first studies about uh, non-lethal strangulation came out in California, I want to say 2009 about then. Um, and so we started understanding that strangulation is a different type of offense, and then how do we even how do we even prosecute this? And our strangulation statute in Texas didn't go into effect until 2011, and uh, we didn't even know the difference between choking somebody and strangling somebody, which is you know external application of pressure and not the internal blockage of the windpipe, which you choke on food, you've choked you, you right. know yourself. So, right. so we didn't even understand in the beginning. So we've come a long way, um, and what we're looking for is when you have internal injury, Injuries. You're talking about impeding the blood flow circulation to the brain. You're talking about impeding the airflow through the windpipe. And when you have those, it's all internal. And it's not about whether there were finger marks on the neck. And it's not about whether there were petechiae or something um, that a nurse would be better suited to look for, right? right? Law enforcement needs to understand that it's about the signs and symptoms of what that person is experiencing because when you impede somebody's blood flow circulation, you're not going to see it on the outside. Right. And so we have people who I think you mentioned before that, you know, are strangled and are homicide victims and there's nothing there until they open the person up and, you know, their hyoid bone is completely crushed. And then you have an ME on the stand, a medical examiner who's talking about what it all means. But and how much pressure that takes and the right. injuries, right? But in a non-lethal strangulation, you have a victim who may not have called the police themselves. Most victims don't. Um, if they do, it's because they think they really were going to die. Otherwise, a family member or a neighbor or a coworker will end up calling the police. Um, and so you have, you're talking to somebody about something that happened to them, and they're thinking, I can breathe. I'm fine. It's I'm okay all over. Now. I right. just need you to you know, make this situation stop. I, I just want to live through the night. And when they live through the night, then the next day looks a lot brighter, and they feel better, and they may have a different perspective about what they want to see done by the state. But they're still in a lot of danger, and we know at that point, seven to eight hundred percent chance that this relationship is going to escalate, and so you have somebody with no marks who doesn't want to talk to you, right. <laughs> and so you end up with a lot of um, a lot of information that you need to get from somebody in a very short amount of time that they're actually willing to talk to you about it. So in our strangulation supplements, we ask things that we have worked with forensic nurse examiners, doctors, medical examiners that will show medically. If this person experienced certain symptoms, there's a very good chance that those symptoms are due to impeding blood flow or breath circulation, um, such as dizziness, disorientation, um, obviously difficulty breathing, raspy voice, hoarse breathing, coughing, um, those types of things are what we're asking for. And so we've got an entire form that we've sat down and, and corroborated with, again, this goes back to multidisciplinary teams, with forensic and medical experts to determine that this is this is good evidence that we can use and the victim can just tell us did you experience this during did you experience this afterwards um, are you still experiencing it pain neck pain headaches ongoing issues that show hey there's there's been a disruption of blood flow to the brain right um, seeing spots seeing stars tunnel vision losing consciousness incontinence and so we took all of those kind of put them into one form and I've also also added that lethality assessment and I use the Maryland model which is 11 questions um, so it shouldn't take very long but it gets us a really good background has he ever threatened you with a weapon right has your batterer ever threatened suicide has there been a breakup 
um, between you two where you've separated and then gotten back together? Are there children involved who are not biological children of your offender? Um, have you, do you honestly believe that he might try to kill you? You know, those are the questions. We add those to kind of the stalking behaviors, the jealousy, the controlling, and it all starts to add up. And the more factors you have, the more indicators that you have that, hey, there's really some control going on here. There's some violence going on here. And those are the kind of the things that we want to look for. You know, we know that... Um, I think it's Texas Council on Family Violence has a, a statistic that says that if someone is going to be killed um, in a domestic violence relationship, it's going to be at or shortly after the time that they try to leave, right? 75% chance is gonna happen at that point. And so we ask, have you ever been separated? And then law enforcement needs to be aware that when he's arrested, that begins the separation and that's the most dangerous time. So why doesn't she just leave? Well, because he's threatened to kill her. She, he's shown that he probably could, and it was only by the grace of God that he stopped and didn't, right? And then the law enforcement's taking him away, whether, you know, she wants it or not. We've right. got probable cause to show that an almost murder happened here tonight, and we right. have to do something about it, and we have a duty to protect her and to enforce the law. And so at that point, I can only imagine how scared somebody would be and what's going on in their minds about what is their next step? How do you face that person? And where do you go if they've taken all your money and they've taken all your access to resources and they've isolated you from your family so you can't call for help? That can be an impossibly overwhelming situation for somebody. And so in speaking of that, so um, about the victim, and certainly all those things, and, and I've heard every single one of those things uh, mm -hmm. from victims that are out there. So what services are there for them? Basically, what can we provide them and, and what should a victim expect, whether it's from law enforcement, it's from uh, community services, from the DA's office, if they're a victim and they say those things, what exactly can we do actually to help them? So I think, um, you know, the end result is we, we say services and it's kind of this all-encompassing, um, you know, concept, right? And it can be different. Every county is different. Every sure. county has different resources and, and every state has different resources and all across the country it's different. So I can I can talk about Montgomery County right. um, and some of it in general, but we have the Women's Center um, who uh, services all of Montgomery County and we're very fortunate in Montgomery County that we have such a good working relationship between law enforcement the DA's office our Children's Safe Harbor the Women's Center our County Attorney's Office we all work together as a team um, with law enforcement to help these cases so the Women's Center um, in Montgomery County offers short-term shelter long-term shelter um, they can offer career services to help somebody get back on their feet. They can offer counseling, which I think is probably one of the biggest things, is just educating somebody about what they've been through and how do I not do it again, right? That right. was the question right. that that you were asked, somebody? right? Yeah. How, do I, how do I trust somebody and what do I do differently? What do I look for? Um, and I think counseling is probably one of the biggest things that they can offer to help them understand that this grows on somebody pretty slowly and you don't just step into a relationship and say, oh, that's great, I'm gonna be hurt in this relationship, right. I'm gonna maybe lose my life. You don't start dating somebody thinking that's the case. I've never met right. a person who told me that. Hopefully not, right? no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so services, um, 
it's dependent on what that person needs. If they need to relocate, there's funds for that through our attorney general here in in uh, Texas. There's um, protective orders. We can get them into legal counsel to talk about um, if they need to leave the offender, how do they do that? Well, you have to file for divorce or else they have access to all your money. It's a community right. property right. state. Right. So if you file for divorce, then you also have to establish custody of the children. And if the children are involved, then you have to protect your children as a parent. And so you need to make sure that there's limited access and that they're not being abused. And so when that whole process starts, it can be incredibly overwhelming. Do I file for a protective order? Do I not? Do I qualify? Do I not? Do I file for divorce? Do I not? And this person didn't ask for the initial assault. Right. They didn't they start it. Life to be completely they overturned. didn't plan for it. Exactly. And so their life is upside down and they've got all these life-changing decisions to make. And people are like, I need you to figure this out. And don't forget that they've also experienced extreme trauma and trauma changes you. And trauma changes how you view the world and how you react to the world. And so they're not making good decisions. They're in self-protection mode. They're in I need to just survive mode and making decisions about long-term consequences for their lives can be incredibly overwhelming. And so when we get an advocate with them, they can sit down, put a safety plan together, help them understand what their options are, help them understand what's going on, um, what to expect in the DA's office, what to expect in the family law world, and kind of put those services together. Um, and so we make sure, in our cases, in our division here, um, our domestic violence division cases, we meet with every victim personally, and we try to assess what needs do they have, because there's more than just this case going on, sure. right? There's more than just removing the batterer. There's more than just protecting them. Protecting them and seeing that justice is done often means getting them into a better place, getting them into a safer place, if they're ready and willing. And so we sit down with them, we try to do an assessment of the situation, um, the relationship, the history of the relationship, if there are children involved, if they need ha any of those services, and then we try to get them referrals to whichever agencies we can help them get to. And we do have multiple partners here in Montgomery County, so we feel fortunate that we do have places that can help them. Now, and, and you talked about the, the children a couple of times, when their children involved, and, and I know we had uh, Children's Safe Harbor uh, on the show a couple weeks ago, and that's uh, where children will go to get interviewed to sort of learn the history of what's been going on in the house. But um, obviously, uh, when they go to the women's shelter, uh, they would ask, what happens to my kids? Uh, do, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, is CPS going to take them? What's, so what's generally... Uh, the course when someone has a child that's in the situation with them? So um, there's a there's a couple of things. First off, I am not going to say that CPS isn't going to take sure. someone's kids. I mean, they they that's, evaluate the situation. Yeah, it's a separate agency, right. so it's a separate they're, determination. They're in of it. Right, but, um, and, and that fear is very real, especially when domestic violence has been experienced um, in, a, in a home, and it can, it can break up the home, and there's a lot of work to be done to get back together. But CPS is there to protect the kids as well. Um, and so I think the answer to your question from my side and my perspective is yes, the Women's Center does take children. Right. The Women's Center takes men. Right. If there's a man that's being abused, then we have um, resources for that. And so you can, you know, it, you don't come to this in any, in any space 
specific, hey, I'm ready for shelter place, right? right? It's the middle of the night with no shoes on and and maybe your bathrobe if you had time to grab it. And, you know, they take you as you are. And that's why, you know, we rely on our community to help kind of put those people back into a place in society that they can become productive members again. You know, and it's important to realize as prosecutors and as law enforcement, you know, it's something that we handle every day. This is something Mm -hmm. that's new to them. It's something that is urgent to them. It's it is uh, a psychological, life-changing, complete mm-hmm. mess. And as law enforcement, as prosecutors, as all these places, we're asking for, for them to make decisions that truly are going to be life-altering. And, and many times uh, we have to train some, some newer people that are in those positions that we know you have another case to get to, mm-hmm. but they're important. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that exactly what you're describing is is kind of the new Um, label for it is called a trauma-informed approach. And I think victim advocates across the country and prosecutors and law enforcement are learning that somebody's brain experiences trauma, especially if you think about, if you think you're going to die, then your brain flips off the ability to make long-term consequences and it's going to focus on, I need to live right now and make it through this situation. And when that happens, then you are making decisions on a different part of your brain, right? And so that trauma-informed approach is the person that you greet at the scene, you greet them as they are where they are in their world, in their life, and in their brain. And so if they are still experiencing trauma, they're not going to be able to make the decision, well, do you want to press charges? They don't know what that means, even on a good day, but certainly not in the middle of the night when they're in survival mode. And so it's really, and that's why we have a duty to protect them, because they, they don't know the answer to that question. They don't know what that actually means, right? They just know, I want to survive. And so when somebody says, yes, I want to press charges, what they're saying is take him away, take him to jail, keep me safe for the night. Right. And so oftentimes when I'm, I'm watching scene videos and I watch a lot of them, I see that interaction and I think what an interesting question, because the question that's being asked is a whole long process of ending with possibly that person testifying against their own abuser and being cross examined on everything they may have done wrong ever in their entire life. And they want to know right now, are you willing to do all this? Right. Right? Right. And that person doesn't know what that means. And the question that they're being asked, the person is hearing a different question, which is, do you want me to keep you safe for tonight? So pressing charges is not a good question (laughs) (laughs) for me. I just don't think it makes sense. uh, You see that research and you see those studies over and over. Uh, We see it in law enforcement shootings. Uh, We've Mm -hmm. seen it in robbery victims and violent victims. All across, uh, you're you're told that uh, short-term memory is not going to move to long-term memory until uh, you sleep, till you have that stressor out of you there. Process so, it. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, if we already know that in law enforcement shootings, if we already know that in violent robberies and these type of things, why would we not uh, think the same thing yes. and apply it to our domestic violence situations? Yes. You know, and, and as we've been talking, the you know, yes, you reflected that you know men are welcome there too. Uh, and please understand, as we cover these things, it's the fact that eighty percent of the victims are female. So when we refer mm-hmm. to her and she and that type of thing, we we are well aware that there's also men out there who are abused and, yes. and, and need services and Absolutely. those type of things too. Yes. And, and also just to clarify, when we're talking about uh, specifically strangulation cases, it is, um, I think the statistics are that it is a 99% male perpetrator um, offense. So I am using pronouns right. in that particular instance. Yes. 
Now, y'all have taken it a step further than just the forum, uh, you know, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud always of, of the work that y'all do over at uh, the DA's office and, and are very proactive and stay on top of things. And, and it is uh, a great to work with y'all because uh, we do the first part of it and then the follow-up and working together has, has uh, deemed us getting people off the street that need to be off the street and, mm -hmm. and certainly a safer community. And uh, I give y'all a great credit for that and thinking ahead. And I know that currently in the domestic violence situation, y'all are thinking ahead. Um, you know, your whole on-call team, which is you. Okay? <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that basically y'all are trying something new. Yeah. Right? So why don't you talk a little bit about that and, sure. and the different use of the of the SANE nurses and, and how yes. they're helping you sort of take this to the next step. Yes. So our initial multidisciplinary team where we added a victim liaison and, and you know, one of the things that um, – that we find is victims who receive services, whether it's w whatever their services are, right? And I said it's different for everyone, whether it's relocation, safety planning, um, shelter for the night, medical attention, victims who receive services, the best we can say in preventing a homicide is that that person lived, right? And so we find that victims who receive services are more likely to live. In fact, they're very much more likely to live. And the more quickly we can reach them with an advocate or with somebody who's willing to offer them help where they are in their lives at that time, the more likely we are to keep that person alive. And you can't ever say that you've prevented a homicide, right. but right. you can say that you kept somebody alive, and that's important. And so um, the more quickly we reach out to them, the more quickly we respond to them, the more quickly we listen and treat them with respect and understand that their situation is so scary to them um, and where they are may feel inescapable. The more that we can do that, the more likely they are to be receptive to actually receiving services. And so we kind of took that concept of that multidisciplinary team where my victim's assistants and my prosecutors and my investigator go out and meet with the victim and we try to make contact within 24 to 72 hours of a case being arrested on the scene. And I looked at that and I said, how do I make it even more close? How do I get it better? And so what we started doing is I want a call from the scene while the, while the law enforcement officer is still sitting with that victim and can we offer them services? We wanna keep them alive. So we added in a forensic nurse examiner who is on call 24 seven. We have a, a new um, agency or, or um, provider. Uh, provider, thank you, right. that um, was started in Texas in the last couple years. And so we've partnered with them, added them to our team, and we can now get um, victims of severe strangulation. So they've given me some medical protocols to screen them to see if it's worth us doing to show that there's internal injuries and that person may need follow-up medical um, treatment that they don't know about, right? There's delayed death due to strangulation um, that they can die hours, days, sometimes weeks later. And so we want to make sure that person is knowledgeable about that that victim knows like hey there's an extreme danger to your life right now and we need to make sure that everything's going okay so um, law enforcement now calls me from the scene I help them evaluate the case make sure that we've gotten um, everything done that we can and then we offer services right there and we have them law enforcement conduct a lethality assessment so we can get a lot of those background facts um, facts and red flags and lethality factors and say this person's really in a, in a dire situation and um, that's kind of the whole point 
is to keep that person alive. So that's that's what we started. It's a pilot program, so we're hoping to implement it countywide. All right. So now the um, the nurse aspect of that. What what would someone expect in that exam? I mean, obviously we're focused on strangulation. I mean, yes. are they going to have a, a CAT scan? Is there X-rays? What's so what are they sort of looking at with that? It depends on the medical personnel and what they actually see. Um, and it's also based on what the victim is willing to allow, right? Because you sure, have to have consent course. for medical treatment. So if, if the person is willing to go in and, and get examined, they do a head-to-toe assessment, all the physical injuries. They'll take photos, just like a forensic uh, nurse examination on a sexual assault victim. Um, and just like a medical examiner on an autopsy, will go through and assess the entire body. They will get a history from the patient, and they will um, determine if there are certain factors, uh, incontinence, petechiae, um, loss of consciousness, um, certain types of breathing patterns, things like that, that that nurse examiner is trained specifically for strangulation exams to determine if there's internal injuries and whether further medical attention needs to be conducted because we don't want delayed um, airway uh, collapse and, and right, right. Mm-hmm, all of that and that yeah and that slow swelling can go up to 72 hours in the neck um, and so that person could literally be um, receiving permanent brain damage or possibly death um, in the in the hours and days after the attack and they won't even know that they're experiencing that so uh, how long ago did y'all start the program we launched it initially in july of last year and so have any of those cases that you launched on gone to trial yet? Not to trial yet, um, but what we find is that it's incredibly persuasive in the pre-trial plea bargaining process. Well, and, and that's always, <laughs> which is the whole point. <laughs> well, and that's always been in law enforcement. If right. you have a solid case, if you put everything together, uh, right. Then, uh, for a defense attorney, for the the um, you know offender to walk in and say, "There's no reason." to go right it's, right this is not going to end well for me anyway right uh, what are other options evidence right. in family violence cases can be so difficult to obtain especially if the victim doesn't want to talk to you from the beginning and so getting that evidence up front may be the only chance that we have to get it because at that point she may run um, the the victim may you know go underground and we we don't hear from them again and so the evidence that law enforcement initially gathers at that first interaction is going to be the most genuine it is going to be the most authentic and it is going to be the best for us to evaluate that case um, as far as if I put this in front of a jury or a judge, can I prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? Can I do it without a victim? Because that's what evidence-based prosecution sure. means is can I do it without that victim being there? Um, and there's some, you know, there's specific rules of law and evidentiary rules that I have to jump through, one of which is hearsay. And sure. then I have to jump through the rights of the defendant to cross-examine the witnesses against him. And so if I don't have a live witness testimony by a victim, then I have to jump through some pretty strong hurdles in order to even be able to bring that evidence in front of the fact determining uh, body, right, the judge or the jury. And so, um, you know, a, a forensic medical examination that is intended to save somebody's life and determine what's going on with that person also serves an evidentiary value for me in trial because it can get a lot of information that would then be um, able to come in without a victim present. And so, um, you know, purposes, hearsay, the exception for hearsay for purposes of medical examination, diagnosis, or treatment is, is a big one. And it's not intended to be for 
um, being used in the courtroom. It's to save that person's life right. or determine their medical condition. And so it kind of jumps some of those hurdles for us. Um, so it's a really a twofold um, tool that we have. So when I get something like that in a case, and I don't get them as often as I would hope, but we do get them, um, you know, I can sit down with the attorney for the defendant and evaluate that evidence. And I can say, listen, I don't need her. I don't need that victim to come in and testify and be cross-examined by you and be attacked on the stand. And quite frankly, I don't blame her for not wanting to do that. So let's just work out something and move on down the road. And your guy needs to take responsibility for what he did, right? So now I know a question that you get asked often, we've talked about this, uh, is you have people who ask you, I have a friend, I have someone who yes. uh, is a victim, and uh, I, I don't know what to do to help them. Right. What's, what's advice that you could tell them? Uh, yeah, I get asked a lot, hey, and, and this is by law enforcement, this is by everyone in the community, right? I mean, don't forget one in three. So right. this is, everyone's affected by this, a friend at church or, or wherever that person is in their lives who, who is coming out and saying, I'm being abused, or there's marks or there's indicators that say, I'm being abused and nobody is doing anything. Um, if that person is not wanting to report to law enforcement, my best advice that I can talk to uh, someone is, you know, if it were me and my friend, <laughs> I would say get them into services and get them educated about what's going on, that cycle of violence that continues to escalate and continues to get worse, and that it's really not going to go away without a lot of intervention about behavioral issues. Um, and so really what we want to make sure is people who get safety plans, people who understand the dangers in their relationship are more likely to stay alive. And that's really, in the end, that's the, best the advice end goal. That they, could, they could go and, yes. and do. Well, uh, in wrapping up, is there anything, I want to make sure you have everything covered that, that you want to talk about, anything that you want to say in reference to your program or to victims or anybody out there helping you uh, that you want to make sure that we cover? I don't think so. I think we got through most of it. <laughs> uh, well, certainly, uh, if there are victims out there, if there's someone who, who found this and is listening just for the purpose that uh, they wanted to find the process, uh, the National Domestic Violence Hotline number is 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Uh, and that, that's an option uh, to call that hotline or certainly to call your law enforcement. Uh, all that we ask is that you call somebody, that yeah. you call and ask for some type of help and get some guidance uh, to get out of that situation that you're in uh, or if you know somebody that's in it to help them out. So, uh, Echo, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, when you do call a Women's Advocacy Center or you call a national hotline for domestic violence, it's confidential. They don't call law enforcement. It's It's got to be the person that's ready to call law enforcement. So if you want to talk to somebody about your situation and kind of get some advice, um, that hotline is probably the best thing that you could do. Thank you. Thank and, you. And Echo, thank you so much for all you do uh, for this county and uh, for our community and keeping uh, everybody safe out there. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for having me.